time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the political science department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salmi. It's a patriotic responsibility for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we're excited to talk to Marcus Brower, professor of psychology here at the University of Wisconsin. Now, Brower's research focuses on group and intergroup processes, and he directs the Brower Lab here at UW, where his research has been at the forefront of national discussions about how to effectively address issues of prejudice and discrimination in a variety of settings, including on college campuses, as well as in healthcare and business environments. There's so many questions we want to ask you about your fascinating and important research, Professor Brower. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. You know, since this is the first time we've had you on the podcast, let's start with a little bit about you and your background. So we're curious about what set you on the pathway towards becoming a professor and studying this particular area of work. Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Germany, and um, in my family, there was. It was interesting because we didn't really talk about discrimination and prejudice, but my parents sort of lived, um, modeled the behavior. But my parents were very inclusive, very respectful to members of other groups. They would never make an assumption of another person just because they belonged to. A particular social groups and I remember when I then grew up I became a teenager and actually for the first time I was really exposed to discrimination and prejudice I was very surprised because I couldn't actually believe it what, what the other person just said why would you say that but you don't even know that person just because they belong to that group you belong you believe that they have these traits or those traits or why are you not nice to that person and I, I remember my big surprise because I didn't even know where these people were coming from and what, what this was about and it, it took me a while to realize that several years and then I actually remember being incredibly shocked because I find it absolutely unethical, immoral to just assume that a person has particular traits or characteristics because they're part of a particular social group or then to treat that person differently or to prevent them living up to their full potential just because they belong to a particular uh, social group. So I remember being so incredibly shocked about that. And after a while, I decided to make that my research area. And we know you received your PhD at the University of Colorado Boulder, is that right? Correct. And then you joined the faculty in the psychology department at the University of Constance, Germany. Yep. For going to the French Center National, French words that I am going to flounder pronouncing. Okay. Uh, institution. <laughs> And then you came to UW-Madison. So that's a little bit more of a complicated path than a lot of the faculty here take in terms of international um, acquaintances here. Yes. Were you intentional about those choices, about teaching in various countries across the world? And has that kind of influenced your thinking and your research? No, I was not intentional. Uh, wherever I was, I thought this is where I would spend the rest of my life. And then new opportunities opened up and uh, better job offers and uh, more interesting collaborations. And I thought, oh, it would be an interesting thing to move there. And this is exactly how it happened. I first two years in Constance, and then they offered me this wonderful research position in France, uh, 
without any teaching obligations and a lot of research money. And that was wonderful. And then the University of Wisconsin came and made me an even more wonderful offer. And I thought, hey, it would be fun to live in Wisconsin. I love winters. I love snow. I'm a cross-country skier. So what's wrong uh, about um, living in Wisconsin? Especially it's a top research institution. And I love being here. No, it was not intentional. Does it influence the way I think about it? Yes, it does, because I think it, it was very interesting to observe what the different issues are. In Germany, sort of the primary target outgroup are Turks or uh, Greeks. In France, it was Muslims, Arab Muslims from northern Africa, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and then in the United States, it's, it's other groups, Latinx individuals, African-Americans, etc., sort of the primary target outgroups that um, towards whom individuals have negative beliefs or prejudices or discriminate against. So um, I do find it interesting to, on the one hand, understand the dynamics that are specific to one country or one social context, and then, uh, on the other hand, also see the communalities between these prejudices and forms of discrimination. And I think it, it, it did help me a little bit to have that big picture view of sort of what is the same and what is specifically cultural and how we can we address these forms of prejudice and discrimination. Do you think, in your opinion, does prejudice look the same way in different cultures? Do people enact prejudice in the same way, even if the target group is different? Um, it's a very good question. There are some fundamental points that are the same. It's these negative assumptions that we have about people from particular social groups. It's the ascription of negative traits, of, of undesirable traits, even though one doesn't know the person. It's the overgeneralization that we think once we encounter one member of a particular social group, we already know them because we know something about the social group, so we don't really have to learn anything about that individual uh, because um, we already have a representation of the group. So that is sort of what the common aspects are, and this is where we psychologists come in because we try to find general principles related to human thinking and human thought processes and how they represent members of other groups. So there are definitely communalities, but then you can imagine uh, the history is not at all the same. United States, African-American, slavery, 400 years of oppression, etc., is one thing. There's the skin color is pretty uh, visible characteristics. Now you, 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 you look at France, where I did most of my work on on inclusion and diversity, uh, most of the people from Northern Africa came in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Many of the issues are first-generation students who are individuals who are born in France from parents who are, let's say, of Algerian descent. So these are individuals, they, they don't even know where they belong. I'm, I'm not French, but I'm, I'm also not Algerian. If they go home, some of them don't even speak the local dialect, etc. They can't speak with their cousins, with their grandparents. So you have these issues of individuals who um, have a completely different identity and therefore will react differently to um, being treated uh, by society in a different manner. So let's jump into some of your work that has made recent news. Okay. A September 2021 Scientific American article has a headline that asks an important and provocative question. Is discriminatory behavior widely dispersed or highly concentrated in a small number of people? Now that's a hell of a question, but can you walk us through this research sure. and what you found? 
Sure. The, the fact that there's discrimination, for instance, on this campus, exclusion, there's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. People belonging to certain social groups, including member of the LGBTQ plus community, African-Americans, Latinx, women in technological fields, first-generation college students, etc. They are the target of discrimination and exclusion. That is, there's no doubt about that. What we wanted to know is, well, how many uh, people actually contribute to that discrimination and exclusion? Is it sort of that most of us are biased and um, um, a little bit biased and then engage in, in, in minor forms of discrimination and exclusion sort of frequently? Or is it that most of that discrimination and um, exclusion is perpetrated by, let's say, a numerical minority of individuals? And that's what we call the concentrated um, discrimination account. And uh, we were actually surprised. We were, I think, sort of predicting the dispersed account. We somehow assumed that most people would discriminate uh, at least a little bit in, in, in various settings. And then we did a, a whole series of studies, 15 studies with a total of 16,000 uh, participants. Uh, we looked at the campus climate survey. We looked at other surveys that we conducted. We conducted field experiments on the sidewalk on campus. We applied for campus positions, sending in CV. We did an audit study. Half of the time the CV had an African-American name and half of the time they had a white name. And then we did a follow-up study where half of the time the person was an Arab Muslim applicant or they were a white applicant. And we wanted to see uh, whether there's discrimination with regard to employment of, of campus jobs. And what we found uh, was that actually it was a numerical minority of individuals who uh, were responsible for the discrimination on campus. That is to say, most individuals did not seem to distinguish uh, between uh, members of different social groups. They treated them with the same level of either politeness or lack of politeness. So there was no difference. And then there was a certain percentage of people, of course, who made a difference. And then one may ask the question, well, how is that possible? How come that the individuals belonging to marginalized groups report being the target of discrimination, but then only a minority of people do it. I mean, our explanation of this was, well, I mean, individuals belonging to marginalized groups interact with many different people every day. So even if only every fifth people or, th or one out of three people is uh, rude, exclusionary, uh, or discriminates against them, of course, they're the target of discrimination and they feel it on, on a daily basis. Sometimes one experience per semester with a professor who, who makes an inappropriate comment or who communicates to students that they don't belong here can have devastating consequences on that uh, student's experience here in college. So it doesn't have to happen by 100% of the people. And uh, sometimes some of these very, uh, how should you say, important uh, interactions that have a devastating impact on students' sense of belonging, on their grades, and how they feel on this campus. So it is definitely possible that a numerical minority of individuals um, clearly distinguish between in members of different social groups, uh, and yet members of marginalized groups feel discriminated and excluded. What are the implications that your research has for understanding discrimination and how it works, as well as how to address it with diversity training programs? 
think it has a lot of uh, implication. One thing we think about a lot is um, we refer to that as sometimes pluralistic ignorance or descriptive social norms. What I'm referring to is people are influenced by what other people do. And it is generally the case, and our data show that, that people underestimate how many of their peers care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. If you ask people, do you care about diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, yeah, I care about it. What, what do you think about your peers? Yeah, I don't think that my peers care about it. Well, th the result is that actually most people underestimate how much importance their peers attribute to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And because they think that, they say, oh, well, I want to fit in, and I want to be like my peers, and I don't want to stand out. As a result, I don't think I'm going to make a major effort here to be inclusive and, and to be non-discriminatory. And yet, um, then everybody sort of acts on a belief that is actually incorrect. And um, our idea was, well, what if we do the other way around? What if we highlight how much people actually care about diversity, equity, and inclusion on this campus? And there is evidence from the campus climate survey, from focus groups, from interviews, that people actually do care. And I think we saw that at the Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd's uh, murder. I think people were surprised about how many people were suddenly in the streets, how many people were really tired of the police violence, etc. So generally what's going on, people underestimate the extent to which their peers care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, and then the idea was, well, what if we highlight that and actually make obvious that yes, your peers do care, and we do find that highlighting that has a number of positive consequences and it gets people to behave more inclusively. And you asked me about diversity training. Uh, diversity training can be effective. It can also be ineffective and sometimes it can be counterproductive. It depends on how it is conducted and um, what kind of messages are being communicated during that training. But sort of one of the key things is always that we tell people everybody discriminates, everybody is biased. If you, and, and the sort of the, the message that comes across is if you want to be like your peers, you, you better start being biased um, because that's what everybody is doing here. And I, I wonder whether that is always the right message we should bring across. At least we should say, okay, people are biased, but they're working on their bias. People are really making great efforts to check on their biases, to keep them under control, to counteract their biases, to correct for their biases, etc. At least that would be the right message. And I, I think we should highlight to a greater extent the very large number of people who actually care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Do you think one of the more common critiques of diversity training, at least in the psychological world, as far as I know, is the critique that it might cause unintended fearfulness with people interacting with marginalized groups if you are not a member of a marginalized group in a specific place because they're suddenly afraid of doing or saying the wrong thing. Do you think that that holds true based on your research? Yes. So first of all, just to summarize, the empirical evidence for the effectiveness of diversity training is mixed X at best. Um, there are a lot of studies that show no effects whatsoever, and there are some studies that show uh, negative effects. So uh, at this point, all we, we know is we don't really know if diversity training works or, or, or doesn't work and has the desired effect. And yes, I mean, we conduct a lot of focus groups uh, on the one hand with students from marginalized groups, but then we also conduct focus groups with 
um, individuals who are our target audience. That's how we refer to them. People whose behaviors we're trying to change. People whom we are trying to get to behave more inclusively, right? And when we conduct focus groups with these individuals, they tell us precisely that. Okay, I'm from a small town in rural Wisconsin. There weren't really many African-Americans or Latinx individuals in my high school. I came here, I went to student orientation. I was told at student orientations that I'm biased. I was told that I have no control over my biases, that I uh, probably do it unintentionally without being aware of it, and that there are an incredibly large number of words or terms that I might say that are offensive to other people. And uh, I'm afraid that when I talk to people um, who are, belong to different social groups, that I might use one of these terms, that I might say something that they find offensive, um, I might hurt their feelings. I might signal to them that they don't belong here uh, without me being aware of it and without me having the intention to do it. Therefore, I'm just not going to do it uh, because we ask them, how come? That's what the students from marginalized groups tell us. They say, hey, when I'm in the classroom, I sit alone. Nobody's sitting next to me. Uh, when the professor suggests to form groups, groups of four for project work in the classroom, Nobody asks them to join the group. When there are study groups outside the classroom, nobody asks them to join. When there are social events organized in the dorms, on the, on the dorm floor, for some reason, the African-American kid is not on the Instagram chat group or whatever where they organize that thing. So it's a lack of inclusion. And then we ask in these focus groups, we ask the, the white kids, we say, how come you are not doing that? And, and then they will tell us. They will tell us exactly that. Well. I'm afraid, I'm afraid that I might hurt other people's feelings. I'm afraid I might say something uh, that is offensive. And then there are certain risks associated with that. Imagine I chat up that African-American student before class and then I say something uh, that they find offensive and then they will complain to the instructor and then suddenly I'm being a labeled a racist in the classroom, etc. So there are very high costs, potential costs to me chatting up students from different social groups in, in, in these settings. And I, I've actually very little to gain because I can just sit somewhere else. I, I can just sit over there and I don't have to sit here, etc. So I, I do think that sometimes the messages that are being sent about implicit bias, about our inability to control implicit biases, the fact that we always unintentionally um, are offensive and engage in microaggressions. I sometimes wonder whether that is actually counterproductive. Yes. What, according to your research, might be effective ways to address ongoing discrimination on college campuses? You talk about the movable middle and the right tools to be more inclusive, but who is the movable middle and what tools might your research recommend using? Great question. Yes, I do think that our target audience are not the super egalitarian individuals who are already making a major effort to be inclusive and who care a lot about social equity. I also don't think that our target audience are super racists because we're not going to change them anyway and we have no idea what their personality or clinical psychology issues are. Um, I think that our target audience are the movable middle. These are individuals who have ambivalent, maybe even slightly negative attitudes towards members of other social groups. But uh, they generally endorse the notion of diversity. They actually enjoy the diversity on campus, but um, they do not 
go out and make a major effort to be inclusive. This is, I think, who our target audience is. So first of all, we have to understand who our target audience is and what kind of messages that target audience will be receptive to. Give you another example. I sometimes uh, give workshops for small business owners in rural Wisconsin. I gave one in Beaver Dam. I gave another one in Sheboygan for Sheboygan Chamber of Commerce. These are small business owners. Um, they probably voted for Trump. If I walk in there and I say, hey, you guys are all racist, it doesn't matter what I say afterwards because the shutters go down at that point and whatever I say afterwards, they're not going to listen to. So we have to understand what kind of messages our target audience is receptive to. So we have to understand these students, and this is why we conduct these focus groups, and we have to test whatever pro-diversity initiative we implement, whether the messages that are being communicated are receptive for these kinds of people. I do another project uh, that has to do with how do you talk to conservatives about climate change and green energy? We talk to conservatives and we say, okay, well, what if somebody said this to you? What if somebody said that to you? Would, would you be convinced by that? Or some of the words are trigger words, where when I, when I start out with those words, um, it, again, the only reaction is reactance. So I think we should try to understand who that movable middle is and what kind of messages individuals belonging to, to that movable middle will be receptive to. What are their resistances? Why are they not doing it? Is it because they dislike the outgroup? Is it because they are afraid they may say something inappropriate or offensive? Do they even have the tools to do that? And actually, what they often told us in these focus groups is, just tell me what you want me to do. I don't even know. I go to these workshops, and then they tell me I'm biased, and then they tell me, go out and be less biased. Why don't you just tell me what you want me to do? And then one of the things that we said, one of the interventions that we implemented and that turned out to be highly effective, we actually for the first time gave uh, students concrete advice based exactly on what the students from marginalized groups told us what would make a difference for them, right? So ask the other people about their names, ask them about their family background, ask them what they did the weekend, go to diversity events. That was something that came up a lot in these focus group from students from marginalized groups. They told us, we have these diversity events, these outreach events, and then nobody ever shows up who doesn't belong to the group who is organizing it. And then the, the, the white students told us, oh, the reason we're not coming to those is because we don't really know, is that a, a safe space? Is that a, a situation where they want to be among themselves? Or is that a, a situation, an, an outreach event? So one of the things that we suggested is we should very clearly label whether uh, is this a safe space event? Is that the Hispanic uh, student organization and they want to be among themselves and speak Spanish? Or is that an outreach event? So one of the concrete behavioral advice we gave is, yeah, go to these diversity events. Here's, here's a web page um, where you can look up what is going on and it will be clearly labeled which of these are outreach events or not. And then a number of things that you don't do or make assumptions, etc. So I think the concrete highlighting that a lot of people on this campus care about diversity, equity, inclusion, that that is important to them. If you look at the climate survey, the number of people who, who say that it is incredibly important to them that this university has a strong commitment uh, to diversity is incredible. Highlighting how many people care about diversity and at the same time giving concrete advice of what we actually want people to do. That is an effective way. And then tailoring your messages 
to your target audience that is the people who whose behaviors we want to change that are sort of for me the three ingredients for a successful pro-diversity intervention mm. i have so many questions but we're going to just keep going okay that's fine <laughs> So more and more people argue that not being racist is not enough and that our goal should be to be anti-racist. I think that's a buzzword that's come up a lot, especially past two years. So what does it mean exactly to be anti-racist and how would you measure or operationalize the anti-racist variable in a social scientist perspective? Yes, that is a recent trend. I actually happen to entirely agree uh, with that recent trend. I think for two decades, we only focused about discrimination and how to eliminate discrimination. Sort of the idea, if you translate that to a, a company context, the idea was to bring in employees belonging to marginalized groups. But then these, the workplace climate was not at all inclusive. It was hard for them, their career didn't advance, etc., and they were extremely unhappy, and actually quite often they left the company relatively soon. So that idea, all we have to do is diversify our workforce, but then not care about what happens to these people once they're in the workplace. That was sort of the wrong approach, and I think um, we're now slowly starting to realize that. So just reducing discrimination, which very often was at recruitment, is simply not enough. We have to now go out and also create an inclusive climate. And that is exactly what I, what I see as being anti-racist. It doesn't just help to bring these students to the University of Wisconsin and then they're in an environment that is relatively hostile or where they do not feel included. We have to make a major effort not only to bring them in, but then also to create an, a social environment where they feel welcome and included. And I think this is the element that has to do with anti-racist. It's not enough to not discriminate. We have to be inclusive and we have to be anti-racist. And I think the anti-racism uh, idea sort of has a second component. So one is sort of actively including other people. That's what it means, anti-racist. Instead of just abstaining from being uh, from discriminating, actively including other people is one component. And I think the anti-racism idea also suggests that we should look at systemic forms of injustice. Are there any procedural practices that on the surface don't look as if they're discriminatory, but de facto actually discriminate against uh, a certain number of people? So how, how are the dorms distributed in this university? And for instance, that, that's one example. Many of the kids from Chicago get to sign up much later for the dorms than the Wisconsin kids. So uh, as a result, the, the, there, there's lack of integration with regard to the dorms uh, at the University of Wisconsin. It's not something that has anything to do with um, overt discrimination or that's overtly racist, but it's sort of, okay, let's think this through. Okay, if, if the Wisconsin kids get to apply for the dorms earlier, then they all find themselves in the desirable dorms, and then all the kids from Chicago have to find off-campus housing, etc., and therefore leading de facto to a discrimination because many of the kids come from Chicago and posse program, people program, etc. So that anti-racism idea also has the thing, okay, let's look at our practices and procedures. How are undergraduate fellowships uh, distributed? Yeah, take teaching practices maybe it's not the best idea to when the instructor says okay guys we have a class project today that's 15 minutes why don't you form groups of four people and then i give you the project 
Why is that not a great idea? Because the African-American kid in the classroom is likely to be excluded and is likely to have a hard time finding other students to work with in the group. So maybe we should think about a different procedure. Maybe the instructor should assign, should create who is in a group of four by randomly assigning students to groups of four and they're just presenting the list of students. So this is where the anti-racist idea comes in. Okay, it's not just point one, it's not enough to not discriminate. We also have to make a major effort to create inclusive workplace environments or university educational environments. And the second is, let's look very closely at our procedures and practices and which of these perpetuate systemic forms of injustice. So I, I asked you about the, uh, the movable, but what about the unmovable? You know, the people that don't really seem like they're going to change their minds. You know, you, you said they're hard to target and they're hard to look at. But is there hope in your research or maybe other people's research? that we can change people's minds who are explicitly racist, xenophobic, or homophobic? There's hope, yes. I mean, it's going to be hard to change the mind of people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. It's going to be hard to change the mind of people who planned a plot to assassinate the governor of Michigan. These are people who are going to be hard to reach. And yet, I have hope because once we move the movable middle and there is a vast majority of people who are clearly committed to diversity and inclusion, we can now signal to these people that they are a tiny minority whose values and attitudes and beliefs are fundamentally different of the vast majority of their peers. And these people with their low self-esteem are going to be impacted by that knowing how incredibly different they are. And this is where I sometimes think that our communication is the wrong thing. Right now, we are sort of communicating to them, oh, everybody else is like you. Everybody else discriminates. Everybody else is biased, just like you. So you're fine. Um, okay, you're a little more outspoken about it than the rest of us, but you're fine. You're, you're one of us. I think we should do the opposite. I think we should communicate to these people, oh, you're different from us. You, you, you're racist. We're not. We, you don't care about diversity and inclusion. We do. And in addition, you are a tiny minority. You're weird. And we don't really want you among us. And, and you are different. And I think when we do that, um, these people are going to change their attitudes and their behaviors. I don't think it's with arguments um, about um, um, where we present historical data about the wealth gap between African-Americans and, and whites. I don't think that that's going to work. As just a brief follow-up here, you published a paper, I believe last year, about incorporating social marketing insights to prejudice research. Would you be able to kind of give us a brief overview of how that works and what that paper was about? Because it sounds so interesting. Sure, sure. A little bit of history, a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion works comes of political activism. There was a civil rights movement, etc. So a lot of it was just doing things, trying to implement something with not a lot of worry about whether what was implemented is actually effective and actually makes a difference and actually changes people's behaviors. And I think this is where we're changing now. We are now asking much more the question, okay, how do we change people's behaviors and how can we measure whether what we do actually works and has the desired outcomes? 
And this is where we started to look at, well, how do other people do it who want to change human behavior? How do people do it in the sustainability domain? How do people do it in public health? What do people do when the goal is to, I don't know, get people to smoke less, to adopt a healthy lifestyle, to eat more fruit, to get men sleeping with men, to wear condoms or whatever? How do people do it? when the goal is to reduce juvenile delinquency, uh, teenage pregnancy, etc. Well, they have a very uh, particular approach. You can call it social marketing approach or the, in public health, there are different names, etc. Where you really identify the behavior or a small subset of behaviors that you want to target. You try to understand which behavior would have the biggest impact. Um, I don't know, teenage pregnancy, you can imagine contraception, uh, abstention, etc. a variety of behaviors that you might promote. So you can say, hey, which of these behaviors actually do I want to target? Which of the behaviors do I want to uh, promote? Then you understand who your target audience is. Once again, um, I think in the diversity, equity, inclusion domain, it's the movable middle. Whereas I think that many diversity initiatives seem to be targeting towards the super egalitarian individuals and we actually don't want to change their behavior we want to change the behaviors of the movable movable middle so think very clearly about the target audience whose behaviors you want to influence where do you get the biggest bang for your buck and then understand that target audience what are the barriers what currently prevents them from engaging in the behaviors that i want them to engage in that are the barriers are they knowledge gaps that I might fill, inform them which of these diversity events or outreach events and which ones are not. Do they not know what behaviors they should be engaging in? Well, obviously they don't. They're all, all they're being told is go out and be less biased. Are they not motivated to do it? Um, is there a value action gap? That seems to be the case. So they, they value diversity, but they don't follow through in terms of inclusive behaviors, etc. So these are all the barriers. I'm trying to understand the barriers of my target audience. What are what currently prevents members of my target audience from engaging in the behavior that I want them to engage in? And then I try to understand the benefits. What in the heads of the members of my target audience, what are the positive consequences that they might experience if they do engage in the desirable behavior, right? So what could I highlight that might get them to behave in an inclusive way? I mean, that is one of the key mechanisms, I don't know, public health. If I want to get you to eat more healthily, I'm going to highlight all the benefits of eating more healthily and what you might get out of eating more healthily. Well, we don't do that in the diversity domain. We always are there with the finger. It's always negative. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's immoral. It's that. It's all negative. Okay. It's, I think it's good to highlight that to increase people's motivation. But every now and then, I think we should also highlight all the benefits of behaving inclusively. And we actually conducted both focus groups and an empirical survey here on, student, uh, on campus. And the students are excited. They can name numerous benefits. Oh, I would make new friends. I would uh, see people who think differently from me. I'm going to learn how to think outside the box. I'm going to see how you can think about the same problem from a different angle. It's just simply interesting to talk to different people. There are different foods. There are different ways of preparing this, uh, different music. Uh, this is also exciting. Uh, it might help me for the workplace uh, because nowadays you all you do is teamwork and, and I, I need to be culturally competent, etc. I mean, it is stunning what people can actually list when we ask them, hey, what are potential positive consequences that you might experience if you were more inclusive? And then we can go out and highlight 
these um, positive consequences in our messaging. Oh, hey, if you behave more inclusively, you will experience this positive outcome and that positive outcome, etc. And uh, that is sort of the idea of a social marketing approach, which is understanding which behaviors you want to target. Don't target all behaviors. You, you won't be able to change all behaviors at the same time. Like go out and be less biased. Well, why don't we focus on a small subset of behaviors that we want to promote in this initiative. And then maybe six months later, we have another initiative where we promote another subset of behaviors. So that particular focus on uh, a small subset of behaviors, understanding who the target audience is, whose behaviors we actually want to influence, and then understand the psychological barriers and benefits of that target audience, and then design a behavior-focused campaign that specifically addresses the benefits and the barriers of that target audience. That is a social marketing approach, and that is what has been shown to lead to enduring behavior change. Yeah, moving, moving, moving to the presence a little bit. You just found out that a 2020 paper of yours won the 2021 Gordon Alport Prize for Best Paper on Intergroup Relations. This is, you know, this is some big news. It is big news. And that paper, I believe, you know, we've talked about, you know, anti-discrimination trainings, but that paper looked more like pro-diversity methods. Do you even want to compare those and maybe give us a little bit more in details into what that research? That research, uh, we try to leverage something that is called descriptive norms. What we understand by, so there are social norms. There's one part of social norms are injunctive social norms. But that's what's the right thing to do. That's what's morally the right and wrong thing to do. Not littering is the right thing to do. Then there are what we call descriptive social norms. That's what most of our peers do. So you can look outside and if there's papers and trash all over, obviously the descriptive norm is to litter, whereas the injunctive norm is to not litter. Well, it turns out we are incredibly influenced by descriptive social norms. Um, finding out what our peers do influences our behavior. We wanna fit in, we wanna be like other people. Sometimes we don't really know what the right behavior is. And then finding out what our peers do and think has a very important influence on our own behaviors. So in this paper, we did exactly that. It was actually numerous studies that were published in this paper, many of them conducted on this campus. And what we did is we randomly assigned classrooms to experimental conditions in what we call the intervention condition. In the classroom, we either put a poster or we showed a five-minute video highlighting the fact that most people on this campus cared about diversity, had a strong commitment to diversity, tried to behave in an inclusive manner, etc. And in the control condition, we, we did not show them that video or we didn't put up uh, a poster. That five-minute video that we created um, was shown the first day of class, and it was something that was a, a big project. Um, we had interviews with students in that five-minute video who told us about their thoughts about diversity and how much they enjoy diversity on campus. We also had campus experts who commented on the institution's commitment to diversity, who reported empirical studies suggesting that um, people try at least to behave, behave in an inclusive manner. The goal here was to highlight what I referred to earlier as pluralistic uh, ignorance, is the fact that so many people tend to underestimate how much their peers care about diversity and inclusion. And here we simply highlighted, hey, just so that you know, most of your peers actually are strongly committed to um, diversity and inclusion. And here's what they do. Here's what you can do, etc. That five minute 
video the first day of class was incredibly effective. We then had uh, surveys in these classes and the students from, I mean, everybody told us that they had more positive attitudes towards members of other groups. They thought diversity was more fun, more important to them. But what we particularly were interested in were the responses from the students from marginalized groups. These students told us in the classrooms where we showed the five minute videos, the, those, the marginalized students told us that they had enhanced sense of belonging. They reported better physical and mental health. They also reported that their peers treated them with more respect and more positively. And finally, and that was the most exciting thing, we then implemented that same intervention in STEM classrooms that had been had, had an achievement gap. So um, a great gap between students from non-marginalized groups and students from marginalized groups. And we implemented our intervention in those classrooms and we succeeded in reducing that achievement gap. That is to say, the gap between students in grades from students from non-marginalized groups and marginalized groups was smaller in the classes in which we had implemented our intervention. And that is incredibly important because that just shows how important that sense of belonging is for students from marginalized groups because it's one of the major contributors to their success. And we come back to that idea. It's not enough to not discriminate. We now have to create an inclusive classroom climate where these students and individuals from marginalized groups feel welcome because that has a major impact on their success, including uh, their grades. Wow, all from a five minute video. <laughs> that is crazy. And also, you know, I think this kind of segues into our last question here, which is we're gonna try and end on a positive note because Obviously, it's been a very um, interesting two years. And on top of this pandemic that's been very disruptive, there's also been a racial reckoning in the US in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and this ensuing rise of a renewed civil rights movement. But your research seems to point towards some solutions that might make, definitely make me hopeful for what the future looks like. Does it also make you hopeful? It does make me hopeful. I mean, we're not going to eliminate 400 years of systematic oppression uh, in one generation. Currently, the wealth gap between whites and blacks is 10 to 1. We're not going to eliminate that in one generation. So it's going to take a while. Having said that, yes, I am hopeful. Being inclusive is usually something that is not very visible to other people. Therefore, people underestimate the number of peers who care about diversity and inclusion. One of the big changes that occurred in the last two years is that I think people are more outspoken, are more verbal about their own commitment to diversity and inclusion, and are now more willing to openly show their own inclusive behaviors. They are more willing to have conversations with peers where they tell them about their own efforts to be inclusive and um, talk about what biases exist and how they are working on overcoming their biases. So I think that is one of the biggest changes in the last two years, that suddenly what used to be hidden and not visible has become much more visible. And maybe we will move towards a society where people actually have accurate perceptions of what most of their peers think and how much they care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's one of the most important challenges of the 21st century. I think it's gonna take a while, but I think we're moving in the right direction. Awesome. Amazing. If you have time, I have one last little question. Sure. Go for it. 
You're you're an outdoorsy man. You love to bike. I do. Um, what's your favorite route? What's your favorite trail in Wisconsin to take when you have an afternoon on the bike? Uh, I do road biking, so it's this. Yes, okay. yeah, it's not mountain biking. I go usually go south because I live on the commuter southwest commuter bike trail, so I go towards Paoli. Frenchtown. I love the Nuglaris Loop. Sometimes I go towards Oregon, Shady Willow Road, etc. This is for me the the most beautiful one. We we also have a farm near Mauston. Uh, it's a secondary house that used to be a farm. So that's 73 miles. That's a beautiful ride going north and then taking Merrimack Ferry, yeah. going along the south shore of Devil's Lake and then working your way over North Freedom, Reedsburg, etc beautiful absolutely stunning and the colors right now are mind-blowing i drove back yesterday from Boston. that does sound beautiful that sounds like the place to be right now yeah just a chill 73 mile bike ride yep <laughs> well thank you very much for being with us today thank you for having me for more information visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 bascom 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.